Okay, so we're continuing our study through uh, this, this book, Christ from Beginning to End by Hunter and Wellam. And it's presenting the Bible as it was given to us. It's one unified story. It's God's story of redemption. And I just want to share just a personal story of how reading through the scriptures, understanding that it is one unified story of how God is at work to redeem the world. Uh, most of you know I went up to visit my father in the hospital, and he had just asked me a question about who, who, where did Abraham come into the story? Was he before Noah or after? And before I viewed the scriptures, you know, biblical theology or as a redemptive whole, that would have been more of just a factual answer. And I was able to incorporate the gospel into that one simple question, who is Abraham and where, where does he fit in? And I could explain to him how God had promised through him that all the nations of the world will be blessed. So just understanding uh, as you read through the scriptures that it, the Bible is a unified story. It can make something that might just seem like a mundane, you know, just a historical fact. It can be rich with gospel truth and encouragement. And I was able to use that simple question just to encourage my father uh, with the gospel. It was a blessing. So when I think of the story of the Bible as a story of God's redemption, I always start by thinking of God, the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you think of God uh, in eternity past, the members of the Trinity loved and served and delighted and gloried in one another. They did not mistreat one another or hate one another or insult one another. They loved one another in complete perfect unity. And of course, the triune God of the Bible created us, man, in his own image just to reflect his glory. He placed man in a beautiful garden and blessed him with an abundance of, of good food to eat. And man enjoyed fellowship with one another and fellowship with God and the presence of God in this garden where there was no sin, death, or suffering. And of course, we know the story. Adam was tempted by the devil. He rebelled against this good God. He sinned, and that's when death and suffering entered into God's good creation. And then, of course, God promised that through the seed of the woman, he was going to send a redeemer to crush the head of that serpent and to redeem the world from the curse. And then... After that promise, we get a glimmer of hope when Adam and Eve have Seth, but sin continues to ruin God's good creation to the point where God destroys the earth with a flood, but he saves Noah and his family, and Noah is a type of Adam, a type of Christ. He is, there's a new creation after the flood, but shortly after the, the flood account, we see in the story of the Tower of Babel, how the people are defying God. God told man to be fruitful, multiply, to spread his glory throughout the earth. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build a tower to God, lest we be dispersed throughout the earth. So they're intentionally rebelling against God. And we see God judges them by confusing their language to restrain their evils. So they will stop construction on this tower and, and spread throughout the earth. And then right after that, we have the promise given to Abraham that Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Genesis, as the book of Genesis closes, we see the descendants of Abraham, they are in Egypt. 
and, but they're under oppression. They are not in their own land. God promised that he would give uh, Abraham and his descendants a land, a nation, the land of Canaan. And as Genesis closes, the children of Israel, we see Abraham's descendants are, they're in Egyptian bondage, they're in slavery. But God is protecting them, and he's causing them to be a blessing to the nations, as he promised. Because remember when Joseph first went to Egypt, he saved the world from a famine, he blessed Egypt, so you see the descendants of Abraham blessing the nations, blessing Egypt. And God was protecting this nation even as they were slaves. Yes, it was horrible what they experienced, but God used that to keep them separate from the Egyptians. Even when Joseph and his family originally came to Egypt, the Egyptians looked down upon uh, shepherds. They were an abomination. So even that stereotype, that racism, if you will, God used that to keep them separate from the pagan Egyptians and preserved the nation of Israel. So by the time we get to the book of Exodus, we see here it says in Exodus 1-7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham are in Egypt. They're not in the land, but we see they're becoming a great nation. They're being fruitful and they're multiplying. It echoes the original uh, creation command to Adam to be fruitful and multiply. It was repeated to Noah, and we see the people of Israel doing this. They are becoming a numerous people, a great nation. But they are in Egypt. They are not in the land, and, and this was even predicted in Genesis chapter 15. God told Abram that, he says in Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So this... Uh, being enslaved was predicted to Abraham. It was told, to, the Lord told Abraham this would happen years before it did. Okay. All right, so as Exodus begins, the, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, they are in Egypt, they're in slavery, they are being used by Pharaoh to serve him, and then the book of Exodus ends with them serving the Lord. The, the book of Exodus begins by telling us that the children of Israel built great cities for the Egyptians, and then the book of Exodus closes with them building a tabernacle for the Lord. The book of Exodus, it begins with uh, the children of Israel, their little baby boys being drowned and thrown into the Nile, and it ends with Pharaoh's army being covered in the, in the waters of the Red Sea. So this Exodus story, it carries the story of redemption along. The promises of Abraham move forward. And just like the promises that God made to Abraham seemed impossible, he was in his 90s, he was about, I think it was 100 or so, when his son was born. His, his wife Sarah could not have children. Seemed impossible, but God did what humanly seemed impossible. He blessed Abraham and Sarah with a son, Isaac. 
And when the Lord told Moses that he was going to get the children of Israel out of Egypt, that seemed impossible. And remember, in this day, people viewed Pharaoh as being a son of the gods. They thought he had divine power. So humanly speaking, it seemed impossible what God was going to do with Moses. So the book of Exodus is structured in three parts. We see in the first 15 chapters, God delivers his people from Egyptian bondage through Moses. In chapters 16 to 31, God speaks through Moses to his people, giving them uh, the law on Mount Sinai. And then chapters 32 to 40, we see that God dwells with his people in the tabernacle that Moses built. So when we think of the nation of Israel, the purpose of this nation was, be, was to be a light to the world. The world, the nations around them were to look at them and to see what it looked like to live in the presence of God under God's law. The Bible tells us that Israel was to be God's treasured possession. They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a holy nation. So Israel, in Israel, the world was supposed to look at them and they were to witness people living in a rightly ordered relationship to God and to one another. They were to show the world what God's treasured people would look like. So being a kingdom of priests, they were actually uh, mediating God's presence to the whole world. So just to give you a little background uh, about Moses, remember that Pharaoh was really fearful. He was paranoid that the children of Israel, these slaves, were becoming too numerous. He feared that they would uh, have some kind of revolt or attack him or join their enemies. So he wanted to kill the little boys, two years and, and younger, by throwing them into the, the Nile River. But uh, Moses' family, actually, they put him in the Nile River in that basket and through God's providence, he is preserved, and he ends up being adopted by, uh, into Pharaoh's house. I think it was Pharaoh's daughter, rescued Moses from the water. But she allowed his birth mother, a Hebrew woman, an Israelite who had the faith of Abraham to raise him and to, and to, and to nurse him and then bring him back. And Moses uh, ends up learning from his birth mother uh, the faith of Abraham, but he also grows up in Pharaoh's court in Pharaoh's house, and he becomes incredibly uh, well-learned and well-educated. I can't remember the exact date, but this book here by John Currid, it's called Against the Gods. It discusses how somewhat recently, I don't know if it's the 1800s or so, they found a lot of ancient Egyptian writings, and it is so obvious that Moses really was fluent and knew in great detail the Hebrew culture, culture and religion. And of course, a lot of... Uh, Liberal theologians, they don't think Moses even existed or there is no way he, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. But reading those documents that were found, that Egyptian literature in the 1800s or so, it shows that Moses indeed wrote the, the Torah, the first five books of, of the Bible. And he had a tremendous amount of knowledge of Egyptian culture and, 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 and religion. You see that throughout the, uh, throughout the account of the Exodus. So Moses grows up in, in Pharaoh's house, and he's, at, at one point in his life, he sees uh, an Egyptian mistreating one of his fellow Israelites, so Moses strikes him down and kills him, 
and then all of a sudden, again, he becomes an enemy of Pharaoh. Pharaoh wants uh, to have him killed, so Moses flees. He is uh, in, the, in the land of Midian. But God heard the cry for rescue from his people. He heard their prayers, and he calls Moses to go back to Pharaoh to deliver his people from Egypt. And Moses is intimidated. He says, who am I? I can't do this. But God reassures him that God is going to be the one to do this. In Exodus 6, verses 68 to 8, the Lord says to Moses, Therefore, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out, of, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So you have this repetition of, I will, I will. The Lord is going to see that this is going to happen. No matter how weak Moses thinks he is, God is going to use him to deliver his people from the land of Egypt. So God rescues his people from Egypt in three steps. First, God judges Egypt through a series of plagues. And then secondly, God uh, saves Israel from their own sin in the Passover. And then thirdly, God rescues his people in the parting of the Red Sea. He delivers them safely through the Red Sea, and he brings judgment upon the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Okay, so first God judges Egypt through a series of plagues, and they all, all these plagues are very unique uh, judgments on the false gods of Egypt. And God uses these plagues to to demonstrate his glory and power over, over the Egyptian false gods. And, and these, these plagues bring uh, Egypt to its economic knees. Uh, the Nile turned into blood that ruined their water supply. Frogs and gnats and flies and, and locusts, they overrun the countryside. Uh, even hail destroyed their crops and fields, and, and nothing remained. And all of this showed that Israel... God alone was God over Pharaoh. And uh, eventually when the Lord sends the angel of death to kill the firstborn of all in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh finally agrees that he will let God's people go. But there is something more... And in rescuing the people of Egypt, God had to deal with, or the Israelites needed their sin dealt with too. And that's where we get introduced to the Passover, when God had declared that uh, the angel of death was coming to kill every firstborn. Every firstborn would die. The Israelites were not exempt from that like the other plagues because they too had sins. And God had the people through Moses, they had to slaughter a lamb in the place of the firstborn and put the blood on the doorpost. And when the angel of death saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over their house. So that lamb died as a substitute for the sins of the people. 
And it, it reminds me of when I was visiting my father in the hospital who was recently converted, but feels tremendous guilt and sorrow for his past sins. And he expressed some doubts of, of assurance uh, going to heaven. And we had gone through some stories, and I remember I had to remind him of the story of the Passover, that the people in those houses were not innocent. God, the only reason the Lord passed over their house was because the blood of the sacrifice, the substitute, was on the door. And that's the only way God will let you into heaven, let me into heaven, because of the blood of our substitute, the Lord Jesus. And that was a tremendous uh, comfort to him who's sick and maybe near death. We don't know. He's doing well, but still in the hospital and severely ill. So it was a tremendous comfort uh, to, a, to a new Christian. So God saves Israel from their own sin in the Passover and then also in the parting of the Red Sea. So God delivers his people, but he has to do so by uh, bringing judgment upon their enemies. And of course, uh, before the Lord brings, ushers in the new heaven and the new earth, he will have to bring judgment upon evil and sin in the world, the enemies of his people. So God judges their oppressors by causing the, after the children of Israel pass through the Red Sea, God uh, causes the waters to flood over top of them and their oppressors die in the water, which is ironic because in the beginning of Exodus, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were wanting to destroy uh, Israelite babies by throwing them into the water and then they were defeated by water and judgment was brought upon them. God was using their sin to judge them. Okay. So all of this uh, certainly points to God's power over Pharaoh. Remember, I, I opened by telling us that people really viewed Pharaoh as being one of the sons of the gods. There are legends that Pharaoh and his magicians could do great miracles. And some people think it was just a little bit of trickery. Others think that there was real, real demonic activity that gave them power to do some of the miracles they did. But God demonstrates over and over again that he alone is the God above all gods, the God above all false gods and false religions, and he can keep his promise. So when things seem bleak in the history of God's people, when pharaohs rise up and, and we're oppressed, we can hope in the promises of God. Now the Exodus story, of course, it, it, it points us to Christ, obviously. Certainly, it points us to Christ. God, of course, uh, when he brings the people into the land, or out of Egypt, he, uh, he gives them his law. He meets with them at Mount Sinai, and he gives them his law and the commandments, and it's to show them and instruct them on how they are to live in the kingdom of God, how they are to be priests to the, to the nations around them. But it didn't take long for the, the children of Israel to rebel and sin against God. When Moses went up on the mountain, they had Aaron take the gold that they had plundered from the Egyptians and, and made, a, it made an idol out of it. And they committed all kinds of sin and immorality. So the law really could not save them. All it could really do is expose their sin. And that's the tr truth with us as well. We don't 
look at the commandments of God and say, <clears throat> oh, there's only 10 commandments? I can do that. And look, check them off and say, oh, I've, you know, I haven't done any of that. No, it, it condemns all of us if we're honest. It just exposes our sin and shows us we need a Savior. And that's what it was meant to do uh, to the people of Israel. The law that uh, God gave to the people of Israel at Sinai, um, it begins by reminding them that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They already had a relationship with God. It, it wasn't, oh, if you keep all these Ten Commandments, then, then you'll be my people. Then I'll rescue you. No, he had already done that. He was their God. And then the center of the law, the heart of the law, was God himself. It was love. The Bible says, you shall love no other gods before, you shall have no other gods before me. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So the law directs the people to, to love God with all their heart. So that is the center of the law was rooted in loving God. The law that God gave Moses is pretty complicated. When you, There's more than Ten Commandments, but it is very complicated. There is laws governing their civic life, uh, laws governing their religious life, and then, of course, moral commands. So it does get a little bit uh, complicated when you read through the Holiness Code in, in Leviticus. And just on a side note, uh, Dr. James White actually on Sermon Audio has a series of lectures where he goes through and uh, exegetes the Levitical Code. It's, it's time-consuming, it's long, but it's well worth it. There's a lot of uh, very specific cultural situations these laws were given in, and it, it, it helps clear up for us today in our modern era. We have no idea sometimes what these laws are referring to. So it's, just know that God's law, as confusing as it is to us, it doesn't make sense to us, know that it was used um, to restrain evil, it was used to protect people from being oppressed, and it was used uh, ultimately to expose our need for salvation. And the law also brought with it consequences. There was curses for not keeping the law. If they kept the law, they would be blessed in that land with God's presence. They would enjoy peace and rest. But if they disobeyed God and rebelled, they would be exiled from the land. Foreign nations would come and plunder them, just like they plundered the Egyptians, and would take them out of the land. And land all, or sorry, the law also has roots in the seventh day of creation when God rested. So there's commands in the law to remind the people of rest. Remember, God in six days created the world, and then on the seventh day he rested and Israel was reminded of this in the law, that on the seventh day they were to rest. And they did indeed uh, enjoy rest in that land in the sense that they had uh, peace from their enemies. When Joshua led them into the land, uh, he says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land that he had sworn to their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he swore, had sworn to their ancestors. So in this land, they were enjoying the rest, which reminded them of the rest at creation, the rest that we look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. 
But of course, we know that the, the children of Israel failed over and over again. They continued to rebel against God. It wasn't even long after the miraculous exodus from Egypt. They were out in the wilderness just complaining and being bitter and speaking lies against God. And even though God had miraculously given them water out of rocks and rained down manna from heaven, they would complain and say, there's no water. You just brought us up out of Egypt just to die in the wilderness. And we loathe this worthless bread, the Bible tells us. That's what they spoke against God. So Israel failed over and over and over again. And what started off as a glorious story that God is going to bring these people out of Egypt into this land and give them uh, his law, and they're going to be a light to the nations. We might think, this is the kingdom. This is it. All the nations are going to come there and see what it looks like to live in God's kingdom, and the Redeemer is going to come, and it's all going to be great. But Israel continues to sin and fail. And then the, we ask the question, how can God continue to bless these people and be in their presence when they have sin in their hearts still? Well, that brings us to the tabernacle. In the law, God uh, provided uh, a way uh, by sacrifice where the people could continue to approach God and God could be in their presence. Only it wasn't complete, unhindered presence like Adam enjoyed in the garden. There was uh, a tabernacle, a big portable tent, and there were sections of it. In the most holy place, only the high where God's presence was fully seen or fully experienced, there was a curtain, there was a veil, and only the high priest could go in only once a year to offer, or sorry, but first he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of the people. So the people could offer sacrifices and bring them to the temple as a way to uh, and continue to enjoy God's presence. Now, of course, the, the blood of bulls and goats can never remove sin. That's why Jesus had to come and shed his blood, ultimately, for the forgiveness of our sins. But they showed the people how they could enjoy the presence of God despite their sin. It was through sacrifice, which, of course, points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so when we look at the, the story of Exodus and how it points us to Christ, we see nine things here our, our, our lesson points out to us. First of all, we see that we participate in a greater exodus in Christ. So God, when he rescued uh, the Israelites, he made certain that they would never forgive or forget what he had done for them. So he instituted the feast of the Passover to remind them that God rescued them out of Egypt by way of a sacrifice. And as they did this feast year after year, they were to instruct their children so they would know it wasn't because they were good or self-righteous, it was because of a sacrifice that God rescued them out of Egypt. And of course, the, the prophets that follow Moses, they spoke of another exodus that was yet to come. And they were referring to the deliverance of God's people from their sin. And that's the greater exodus that we experience. In Christ, of course, God cures our problem of sin through Christ's life and his death for us on the cross. Jesus even spoke of his own death as an exodus, as a departure. Because in Jesus' death... Uh, 
on the cross and his resurrection, redemption from sin has finally come in its complete sense. In Christ, we have a greater exodus from the slavery that has occurred because of our sin. So in Christ, we experience a greater exodus, not just from a nation, not just from slavery, but from the ultimate problem, sin. In Christ, we also experience a greater rest. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And that echoes back to God's uh, goal in creation was that covenantal rest that Adam had abandoned when he sinned and rebelled against God. And through the law, God continued to remind people of this rest by giving them the, the, the commandment to keep the Sabbath day. And also there are other Sabbath uh, laws that they had to keep and Sabbath festivals to point to this ultimate rest that is found in Christ, the rest that Jesus offers to all of us a rest found in him from all our works. And that is good news for each one of us here that in Christ we have a greater rest. So in Jesus, we actually hope in a greater Israel. Could you imagine if our hope was in this nation? Whoa, that would be, that would be hope. That would be terrible. Because they failed. So they're not going to... The, Israel, the nation of Israel can't save us. It points us to someone else who will. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus and all the types that came before him, they all failed in, in various ways. Noah failed after uh, God rescued him. After the flood, we find him naked and ashamed and drunk. He failed, and Jesus never failed. He did what Israel failed to do. And when you study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you see how it parallels the, the story of Israel, how uh, Jesus was brought to the land of Egypt by his father Joseph, just like the Israelites were, and they were brought back to the land of Israel. And at his baptism, God spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Israel was referred to as God's son. And of course, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, which reminds us of Israel's failures. They were tempted. They were in the, in the desert 40 years. And when they were tempted by Satan... They rebelled against God and sinned just like Adam, but Jesus did not. He resisted the temptation of the devil. He was alone. He didn't have the companionship Adam had. He was fasting. He didn't have the provision of food Adam did. And you know that every single person before the Lord Jesus that was tempted by the devil failed. Jesus never failed. He was sinless. That's our hope. That is great. Praise God. So in Christ, we also have a greater prophet. Moses said that there will be a prophet that, that will come that's greater than him. As great as Moses was, Jesus is greater. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18:15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. He's speaking about Jesus, our greater prophet. And Jesus came. He was the word made flesh. He dwelt among us. The book of Hebrews tells us that God in, in, in the past spoke to us in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And when Jesus was here on earth, he taught the people about God. He commissioned his disciples to write the Gospels and the Epistles and promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to guide them as they wrote. So that's how God speaks to us now most directly in his son, as, as our greater prophet, through the New Testament writings, through the entire Bible. It's Jesus speaking to us. 
So in Christ, we have a greater prophet. In Christ, we also uh, receive a greater law. The law was good in all that it commanded and all of its purposes, but it really could only expose the people's sin. It could only expose our sin. And when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't speak merely as a new Moses. He spoke as the one to whom the law pointed. In Christ, the law has not been abolished. Rather, it's been fulfilled. In Christ, our new covenant head and substitute, our sin is fully paid for and the Spirit's work of new creation is secured. And it's either in 1st or 2nd Corinthians, believers are called a new creation. So what the law could not do for us, the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us by his life, death, and resurrection. In Galatians 3, 13 and 14, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So in Christ we receive a greater law. In Christ we also trust in a greater mediator. Now Moses was a great mediator between God and the people. Uh, He was used by God to speak to Pharaoh and to lead his people out of Egypt. God worked through various mediators throughout the scriptures, Abraham and David also. But now, God mediates all his blessings through Jesus. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus is fully God and fully man, able to perfectly represent us to God. He was perfectly sinless, and he is the perfect sacrifice for our sin to make us right with God. So he is the perfect, greater mediator than any of the Old Testament shadows. In Christ, we also enter a greater tabernacle. That's why when he died on the cross, the the curtain in the temple was torn. The temple, uh, as glorious as it was in the sense that God was showing his people that he was in their midst, there was a curtain keeping the people out, but it was only a copy of, of what to come. And Jesus is the true tabernacle. Uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he became flesh, he dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. He lived among us in the sense that he walked among us, but he also went to the cross and shed his blood as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He is the the greater temple, giving us access to God. And in Christ, uh, we shine with a greater glory. The Bible tells us that when Moses came down for meeting with God, that his face was shining. It was radiant because he had just spoken with God. But under Moses, this glory was actually dangerous for the people to behold. So Moses had to veil his face. And Moses only saw just the the, the end of the trail of God. He didn't stare God directly in his core. He just got a a glimpse of the end of God's glory, his trail of his glory, it says. And the people could not even survive just a glance of of Moses' face. They had to be veiled. But 2 Corinthians 3, 12 tells us that, uh, Therefore, since we have such a hope, 
We are very bold. We are not like Moses who will put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were made dull. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the, Lord's, the, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So in Christ, we shine with a greater glory. We're being transformed into the image of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in Christ, we sing a greater song. After uh, the Exodus, when God uh, brought the waters of the Red Sea and brought judgment upon the enemies of God's people, uh, they sent, Moses sang a song. He led them in a song because their enemies were judged. They were freed from bondage. But we sing a greater song. In Revelation 15, verses 1 to 4, this is, the song our, this is the song that we sing. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image, in the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So God is going to ultimately bring all these promises to pass, the promises that he made to Abraham. Uh, what Israel failed to do, God is going through Christ and the church, God is going to accomplish. In the end, all evil and sin and evil and death will be punished. It will come under the flood of God's wrath. And Jesus will create a new heavens and a new earth. And all those who are trusting in him We'll have resurrected bodies and we will live in the presence of God without sin for all eternity, loving and serving the Lord and serving one another and loving one another. What a great hope we have. And this was accomplished by Jesus, the perfect man who kept the law of God perfectly in our place. Yet he experienced the plagues that God poured out on Egypt. He experienced darkness at the cross. Just like the Israelites who were exiled out of the land, the Lord Jesus Christ was exiled out of the nation of Israel, outside the camp, sorry, outside the city of Jerusalem, outside of the camp. He was handed over to pagans, the Gentiles, to be crucified on a pagan cross, and he shed his blood for our sins, the ultimate Passover lamb. And he too was plundered. They took his clothes from him. He was plundered. All the curses that were supposed to come upon Israel for their failures, came upon the true Israel, the perfect Israel, our Savior, 
He did this for us because he loved us. And that should give us the greatest hope and joy in the midst of any kind of suffering we endure, any kind of persecution that might come our way. It should cause us to willingly want to suffer for the sake of the gospel, knowing where it all leads to, the new heavens and the new earth. Everything we experience will be glorious in the new heavens and the new earth. We will see the glory of it all. So let's, let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for your love and grace to guilty sinners like us. Every single one of us in here has failed to love you and serve you as we should. We have all sinned, but you are gracious and merciful. You are faithful to your promises. We thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took upon flesh and he died as our substitute. And just like the angel of death passed over the homes of those who had the blood of the lamb, Judgment will pass over us because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us just to delight in him and to serve him. We pray that he would be glorified and praised this morning. We pray that souls would be converted and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.